I'm Karen London, and you're tuned into the Backyard Pet Talk with Shannon Riley podcast. Hi, Karen. It's so great to have you back. You've been our guest before, but now you have a brand new book, Cows, Ants, Termites, and Me, Revealing the World of Animals, One Newspaper Column at a Time. I'm really enjoying this book quite a bit, but um, I wanted to share with our listeners a little bit about it. Before we jump into it, I know a little bit of the backstory of how this book came about, but do you want to share like a little bit about you and how this book started? Yes, definitely. And first, Shannon, just let me say how nice it is to be uh, talking with you again. I feel like it's just as per usual, sitting down and talking with a friend, which is so nice. And I'm so happy that you are interested enough in the book to have me uh, talk about it. And I started writing the animal column in my local paper in in 2008. It had previously been a a pet column. And then the person who did it before me started writing about some other things. And then when I took it over, even though I'm obviously very deeply involved in the pet world, I wanted to get back to my animal behavior roots. That's what my uh, graduate degree is in, working with all kinds of different animals. And so I started, it's called the London Zoo, which has nothing to do with the London Zoo and just has to do with my name and my interest in animals. And I just, I've started writing it, writing about all kinds of different animals. And um, this uh, cows, ants, termites, and me is a collection of 145 columns. I've written close to 380. This is from 2008 through 2015, all of the columns, except for the ones about dogs, because those will be in a separate dog related column book. And it's just my way of sort of sharing highlights of the animal world and what I'm interested in book form. Oh, now you got me interested. I can't wait to see the dog one now because I'm really enjoying this one. So you're teasing me again, Karen. (laughs) (laughs) Who have you noticed is the best audience for this book? I mean, obviously it's newspaper readers who did read it in the newspaper, but anybody who didn't read it in the newspaper, who do you think would really be interested in this book? What's kind of the audience you were thinking about? I think there are sort of several types of audiences, if that makes sense. One is just people that are interested in animals and animal behavior. And one of the things I often think about with being involved in animal behavior is that I think a lot of people, if they meet someone that's an animal behaviorist or an ethologist, an easy way to describe sort of our place in the world is like, people don't know what we do, but they're dying to know what we know because people Mm -hmm. are really interested in animals and animal behavior. So anybody that's interested in animals in general. And I think for people in the sort of dog world or the cat world, there are a lot of concepts in this book that relate to animals there sort of in terms of natural behavior and alarm signals and social behavior and defensive behavior. So anyone that's interested in animals. And I have found that interestingly, I think some of the people that have been the most interested in it are people who are professors in any kind of a biological field. I've noticed that the people that I would describe as the biggest fans of this book and the column are are people who are uh, academics in biology, which I'm really pleased about because it tells me that it's, you know, it's not pitched at a low level, which was always my intent to have it be kind of high level in terms of concepts and ideas and information. That is very cool realization. And I just thought, as you said that, is I have a friend who's a professor at a junior college in Santa Barbara. And he loves all this stuff. He's a biology professor. And I'm just thinking, I'm going to have to tell him about this because he loves all the little nugget information that you have in there. You know, just these little 
I love it because it's short stories, but you really learn something with each story about whatever that topic is. So I think, I think that's a great, you know, thing to be for people to see and to read and to make science kind of fun for people who maybe aren't sure if they want to be in it. it it's really interesting. That makes me think about, I have a couple of favorite stories so far. Well, and I already told you before we started the podcast, the way I am reading the book is I just have it next to my bed or with me. I went camping and I just with me and I just flipped to different stories rather than reading it from front to back. I'm not really sure. I think I was just flipping through it and that's how I started it. But I found it's almost like I get a little surprise instead of it just being in a row. It's just the way my weird brain works. But I my- love that. And I, I love that you're mentioning that you you know you have a friend who is in biology who might like it. And I, I love the way you're experiencing it as little nuggets, because I often think of it as gee whiz science, which was Jeff Bayless was a, a professor who studied fish behavior. He was on my committee in graduate school at the University of Wisconsin. And he always said, talked about gee whiz science, like just that the fun, most interesting kind of surprising bits. And I, I often had him in mind when I was writing things. Something I would always envision for this book, although it has not come to fruition yet, is I would love for professors or high school teachers who are teaching about animals and animal behavior and biology to have this book and you know start a class by reading a relevant article because they're only 500 words long. So they, they don't take a long time to read, but they could introduce a topic in hopefully an interesting and informative way. 100%. That actually is perfect segue to what one of my stories that I've actually read a couple of times because I just, I actually turned the page is your glowfish story about, you know, how glowfish and being genetically modified and then comparing it to food and like pets and then the, the dangers of it. I feel like even though I understand all that stuff, I just saw it from a different perspective and I reread it a couple of times because it made me think of other things. And it would be such a great book for a biology teacher, even a high school biology teacher to say, Hey, pick one of these stories as a takeoff point and to do research more on, you know, whatever, you know, the biological, you know, changing the genetics or another one of my favorites is um, because I get stung by bees very easily. And then you would say, well, don't smell like a banana. I'm like, well, Karen, I don't, smell like a banana, but they still be, so I just laughed when I read it. And so it became one of my favorites because I'm like, okay, but it, as a student, I could say, well, what other things attract bees to people? You know, like, I think it's a great jump off place for other things. Well, I'm sorry to hear that you get stung by bees so much. I know some people do just seem to either attract mosquitoes or bees or other things. And the chemical that's in banana that mimics or is similar to the alarm pheromone of bees is probably only one substance that's attracting them. I wonder if there is something either chemically with you naturally or with some product you're using that is attracting them, or maybe you've just been really unlucky. And I'm sorry about that too. Exactly. It just, but I thought, well, that's interesting, you know, because try not to like make them angry. You know, I try to do all these other things. I avoid them and I don't get stung nearly as much. When I was a little girl, I got stung like almost every day. Now, granted, I was a girl of the eighties. So I ran around barefoot in my front yard and there were, we called them bee trees, but they were bottle brush bushes on that's what the neighborhood had at every house. So we had a high level, high level of bees. Mm -hmm. I was a not careful little girl. So one of my friend's parents just had the baking soda and a cup next to their sink. So I could put baking soda on my bee sting every day. Like they just knew, oh, Shannon's going to come in if she's here and get stung by a bee. But now I'm more careful. One of my other favorite stories that I thought was really important is how you talked 
briefly about um, how pets become popular because of TV shows or movies. And then you, you know, really dug into guinea pigs and how they can be a great pet. But I loved how you segued that to this is an issue like when Dalmatians, 101 Dalmatians were popular. And then you go to the guinea pigs where people think to go to store, oh, guinea pigs cute, but all the things that are required, like they're not just a piece of art or, you know, they are actually a living animal that needs to be cared for. And that's what I also liked about some of the chapters is, you know, they were teaching people about specific pets and what, you know, care for them, at least to get them started with that. So I thought that was a great piece of this book as well. Oh, I'm glad. And we all know, obviously with dogs, especially, you know, when Eddie and Frazier was on, then everybody went and got Jack Russell Terriers, which aren't obviously perfect pets for every family. And Uh, the Dalmatian, you know, debacle of that time period. And I think we were all concerned about St. Bernard's becoming really popular after the Beethoven movie, but that didn't actually happen because I think enough people were like, oh, that's pretty big. Um, Exactly. I I do think, I mean, for both you and me working with, with pets so much, so much about getting the right pet, whether we're talking about guinea pigs or hamsters or, you know, rats or which breed of dog or whether you want cats or snakes. It's just about it being a right match for you. And guinea pigs are so often not a great match for younger children, particularly. Yes. Even though they're a popular pet for people to get, you know, yeah, it's so hard, you know, for, you know, people get them and then they just don't know all the care that's, you know, involved with them. I, um, recent thing, and I don't know if you're seeing this, but um, I've seen a lot of cattle dogs and healers really an increase. And this is scary, but I actually asked a client once, I'm like, why, you know, are these getting so much more popular? And I'm in a city, like nobody has cattle or herd. nobody needs a herding dog. Like you don't have to have one unless they just want it. Someone told me, oh, well, there's a video game that has a healer in it. And it's so well behaved. It's a video game that uh-huh. I really wanted a dog just like that. And I was like, I, I was almost speechless. <laughs> Because I'm like, you do realize video games aren't real and that dog is computer digital, you know, digitally created. But that's an interesting thing that I'm seeing. I don't know if you're seeing it in your region, but it's uh, pretty big here. That is really interesting because, well, I'm not familiar with the video game, but I'm hardly familiar with any video game. Me either. I didn't know about the video game either until my client told me. I'll have to uh, find out a little more about that. And in my area, I live in Northern Arizona and there are a lot of stray dogs living in the sort of the wide open spaces of our region. And when I first moved here 18 years ago in 2005, I saw what I thought were a ton of cattle dogs. I mean, it turns out a lot of them are stray dogs, essentially village dogs, you know, in the Mm -hmm. sense of that. There are a lot of dogs here that look like cattle dogs and people often say, oh, it's cattle dog mix, but I'm not convinced they are because they don't act like cattle dogs. Mm -hmm. They don't. They're not nippy. They're not uh, super chasey. They look like them, but don't act like them. So I'm not, I'm not seeing, I'm continuing to see those, but I'm not seeing a lot of cattle dogs in my area. Like I might see a few a year. Mm-hmm. That's how I used to always be. But now all, I just have had an influx in my puppy classes and my private trainings and my agility classes. And because I saw such an increase, I asked because they're not always the right match, just like Jack Russell's aren't always the right match for people. And sometimes when they're coming to me privately, it's because they weren't the right match in the first place. So I um, questioned it and it's, I don't know, it's some kind of shooting video game. So I don't even know the name of it, Um, but it has this 
cattle dog. And I remember somebody one time, I think I saw it as a Facebook, but I kind of ignored it because it was a video game. But yeah, so it's just interesting how people see things on a show and just automatically jump to it, even if they don't do the research to know if this is the right fit for them or not. Yeah, I suppose it's a natural thing. Like, uh, I mean, I like, you know, see shoes I might want that might not suit me, or I see like a hairstyle, I'll try it. And it's like, you know, at my age, that might not be the best thing. <laughs> right. But, um, but we just see things and, you know, want to give them a try. I guess the difference is obviously with pets, giving things a try is a lifelong commitment. It may be a mismatch. Um, yeah, that's yeah. not a bad, it's probably, you know, that whole idea of, I really like the way they look, or, you know, I like the, what I've seen in somebody else's. So yeah, it's just an interesting, I think there's a lot more that it's something I find interesting is, is helping people find that match and, and helping people know if a dog's a match, because that usually helps so much in a relationship as a lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, the way we sort of launched into this was just talking about like the glowfish and it's been for about a quarter of a century that zebra zebra daniels have been crossed or not crossed with, but they have genes from like jellyfish or, um, and it's like, it is, people love the way they look. They like fluorescent or UV light. They're brightly colored. They look like a pack of highlighters. And really, we don't really know too much about the health of them, but we know that they're pretty cool. And I mean, I think it's natural to want pets that have a cool look um, that can obviously lead to dark places, but like no judgment here. I feel like it's sort of a natural thing to be like, oh, wow, look at the colors. For on the sure. <laughs> I mean, we all do to some degree. I mean, when I, I don't currently have a fish tank, but when I did, you know, I would go to the store, you know, the aquatic store the, and say, oh, I want that, you know, my aquarium. Obviously, depending on what I had, I had to make sure that they were compatible, but it was more, if, if I'm really honest, when I pick a fish, it's more by look and being compatible in my, you know, aquarium than it is like, seeking out something for some other reason you know that's just how it is and when I was in college I had swimming frogs just because I thought they were cool you know I mean like that is true that we do that so I mean yeah it's just definitely I mean I think the way things look is a huge you know factor in our enjoyment of them and I feel like like I used to live on Catalina Island and at Catalina Island Marine Institute it's an outdoor education place for kids and I was an instructor there and one of the um, fish we often like to see was the Garibaldi, which is the state fish of California. And I was always excited for them to see it. And it's kind of the same color as the California poppy, actually. But mm -hmm. the young have like blue neon spots. And people were always so excited to, to see them. And for the first little while I was there, I really thought people were excited to see it because it was the, the state fish. Uh, and only <laughs> like a couple of weeks later, when one of my fellow instructors sort of like wrapped me upside the head, I was like, Karen, they're excited to see it because they have like neon blue spots on them. And I, yeah, I had to admit, yeah, that does make more sense. Exactly. Well, yeah, that's why, you know, when you go to warmer waters and they have more like the fish get more colorful and the coral reefs and things like that. So yeah, this really is such an interesting, and, and, and that looks back at, you know, both of us are very interested in behavior. So, you know, I guess it makes us look at human behavior a little bit too, because it's just part of all behavior, you know, of why do we do this? So, yeah, absolutely. I, I always think when I'm thinking about what people do, there's always just, you know, social interest, because I'm a human being, but there's always an element of, you know, I am trained in the study of animal behavior. And I'm interested in what, you know, what I do and what my humans do in sort of an intellectual sense as well. For sure. For sure. Well, do you have a favorite article that you wrote in, whether it was, you know, in the newspaper, but now that has come to this book? I do. I, I mean, I have a few favorites, but I think if I had to narrow it down to just 
like, a, a, well, I don't know how many I can narrow it down to. Well, yeah, just a couple. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's hard. <laughs> it is hard. I like the one that I wrote about snakes being both cool and alarming. The, the story was I was in, in Venezuela working on my PhD studying social wasps and there were some herpetologists, so people that study reptiles and amphibians, some Venezuelan scientists there. And they invited me to go along with them to, to pull an anaconda out of the river and weigh and measure it and track it. And uh -huh. I was super excited about it, but I was also kind of nervous and it made me laugh because they kept saying, don't worry, Karen, it like, they're not poisonous. It's like, I know they're not poisonous, but like they could kill a caiman or a they seriously injure you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, they could kill me, uh, suffocate me. So, I mean, you know, um, I wouldn't be a match for it. And we were on the river in the, it's in the Llanos region of Venezuela headed to go to this place, the bridge where they'd seen this anaconda. And I was finally kind of at peace with the idea of like, they know what they're doing. We're going to see this anaconda. It's all going to be safe. And then we saw an eyelash pit viper right above us oh my and, gosh but instead of being terrified I was like oh my god that's so exciting and it's like so, it, I, so I just had this whole mix this day of like being excited and um being scared uh because I, I have a love-hate relationship with snakes I really do love them but yeah. I also have a healthy fear of them which seems to be evolutionarily ingrained in humans for good reason I I, I explain that to people sometimes I'm like why are, you've never been bit by a snake but why are we afraid of them you know and it's just like sometimes it's just part of our safety, you know, but I also understand that because I find some snakes fascinating, but I'm, I have that healthy fear, but I have a friend who's terrified of them and she doesn't even know, you know, why, you know, but it is an interesting thing that, you know, and, I, and then you also, something I'm also fascinated is conflicted behavior, you know, conflicted emotions, you know, you've got your excited and you're scared at the same time. And I, that's something that, I'm always interested in watching in whether it's a dog or a person, you know, that conflicted emotion about things. So that is yeah, cool. that ambivalence. Yeah. Yeah. And That's I think for me with snakes, a lot of the conflict comes from, they are really fascinating. Like the eyelash pit viper has these modified scales that really look like eyelashes. They're so mm -hmm. beautiful. They can be bright yellow and green. Um, but then, you know, there is a natural, I think, part of our evolutionary history uh, that teaches us if we're like running around the savannas of, you know, <laughs> tropical areas that, you know, avoiding snakes is probably going to help keep us alive. And I, yes, I, I think my, you know, everyone I know sort of knows I like snakes, but I also am like kind of a little nervous about them. And uh, we were, our family was hiking one time and my kids were a little bit ahead of us. And my older son said, ow, a snake just bit me. And of course I like panicked. I'm like, oh my God, what kind of snake was it? And my uh, younger son um, sort of helpfully replied, oh, it was so cute. It had a little maraca on the end of its tail, um, which is not true. It was, it was not a rattlesnake. It, it, okay. <laughs> but um, I just thought it was funny. It's like, oh, that's only a joke that can work for someone that's pretty nervous about snakes. Yes. Like yes. Yes. My, my son is very scared of snakes once. And I not realizing how scared he was, I was like, oh, there's a snake. And he jumped like, ten, he was so mad at me, 10 PI. And then I apologized profusely because I did not even realize how, t how scary it was, but just hearing the word, you know, kind of sent him, I've been since way more compassionate and don't say that to him anymore. But, and if there is really a snake in a calm way, I'm like, just be aware there's a snake on the path, you know, instead of letting him get scared. Cause it is, it can be very terrifying for people. Yeah. I don't like to see a snake by surprise by any stretch of the imagination. That's for sure. Um, and I, you know, I did a lot of my research in Costa Rica and then a little bit in Mexico and some in Venezuela. And I was in all cases in areas that were a little bit remote from medical care and that definitely had a lot of uh, quite dangerous and poisonous snakes. So I, I really were careful. Yeah. yeah, I was careful. And I, I definitely did not 
I just deeply did not want to be bitten. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> for sure. So you said that you also had some other favorites. I know you might have a ton, but you'd like one or two other stories that we can share with the listeners. So, you know, they might look for these stories because I think they're all, fa- I'm looking forward to reading more of them. Yeah. I will. Uh, two others. One of them I wrote about like not worrying about the reindeer. And, you know, often I try to write you know, columns about courtship around Valentine's Day or parenting around Mother's and Father's Day. And I've written about bats and spiders around Halloween and, you know, turkeys at Thanksgiving. And so I wrote about reindeer one uh, uh, Christmas. It was just sort of a little bit tongue in cheek about not worrying about their health. Like, for example, it, you know, like male reindeer uh, really suffer during the breeding season. They lose like something around like a third of their body weight. And, you know, you kind of worry about them in the fall not eating and being in such poor shape and then, you know, pulling Santa sleigh. But luckily um, male reindeer lose their antlers usually by like mid December, often in late November. So we know that the females pulling Santa sleigh have to be, um, have to be female. So we know they're in good shape because they're, (laughs) they don't, you know, that kind of thing. And, and also that there aren't aerial predators of reindeer. So they're safer in the air. And just, it was just a whole bunch of things about how we don't need to worry about them. So I like that one. Oh, I love that. I'm going to look for that one. I didn't see that one yet. Um, I haven't flipped to that one yet. So, uh, but I love that. That is really a fun. And, you know, we've got some girl power happening there too, you know, because it's the girls that are, you know, pulling the sleigh. So you got a little (laughs) Nothing wrong wrong with that. Um, Right. And then, and, and oh, there, there, I think there are a couple articles about reindeer in this book. So, but that was one of them. Um, and then another one that I really like, just because it's just, I think, such cool science is that there was a study of fruit flies that showed that when males were rejected by females, they tended to choose food with alcohol more than males who had been allowed to mate with them. And it really turned out to be that whenever, um, uh, mating to tends to up certain levels of a chemical in the brain. Um, that's like a reward-based situation, mm-hmm. which basically from an evolutionary perspective tells you, you've done something that's good, you know, like yes. you've eaten or you've made it, or, you know, you've been safe. And if they are deprived of mating opportunities, and in this case, by having them be with females who are already mated, so we're not receptive to males, then they were, then they sort of did something to up those chemicals in their brain. And I think it's really interesting, first of all, that even though fruit flies and humans are widely divergent evolutionarily, we both have related neuropeptides, not, they're not from the same evolutionary base, but the, the same kind of chemicals that humans need to get activated in their brain is what these fruit flies were trying to do by having alcohol. And it really does speak to the idea that it's really important to consider the way the brain works when treating addiction. So um, it's really important that there really is a physiological need for reward centers in the brain to be activated. But it's just kind of a funny to think a whole new application of the term bar flies, basically. But right, right. I so they're that- drowning their sorrow. So I like that, Colin. Just because oh, that and that one, again, if if we gave this to a biology professor and told somebody, you know, take an article and, and run with it, gosh, it makes me want to be a biology teacher again. At one point I wanted to be a biology teacher and now I kind of want to go back and teach your book in biology, but well, you I could look it. at, you could look at addictions, the important addictions and alcoholism and narcotics and all of those. And that, that reward center of the brain, but you could also look at it as how that study could correlate to positive reinforcement and, you know, the, how positive reinforcement can be a, you know, positive part of the brain. And, you know, you could look at it in a couple different angles. So I love that. Yeah. And I think the idea of just how the brain responds to positive reinforcement, whether we're talking about people or dogs or any other species, I think there's some really, I mean, it's been interesting research in recent decades, which I'm by no means any kind of expert in, but I just sort of try to follow, but I'm not, it's Mm -hmm. not my area. 
But the idea that obviously positive reinforcement is very, you know, powerful and that in certain age groups, like in humans and adolescents, adolescents are more responsive to positive reinforcement, which really is important for understanding, you know, raising children that they're so responsive to it. It's so powerful. Why not use that instead of pretending that punishment is a way to teach? Right. Way to suppress behavior or make things angry or take out your frustrations. And I also think that there's a, a there's evidence that that anticipation of positive reinforcement of some kind of reward is is even more powerful in a sense than the reward, which means that if there's certain kind of social systems or types of people or you know not like not neurotypical people who don't seem to think of the future or who don't seem to plan ahead or have that way of thinking that, that perhaps their brains are not as responsive to positive reinforcement because it's they're not able to have that anticipatory joy perhaps this is just mm-hmm. short theory and i think that's interesting it's just the idea that understanding the biology and the behavior and the brains of the animals whether they're our own species or not is important for how we interact with them and it, i think one of the things i like so much about writing about science is that it emphasizes the true importance of basic research. I mean, if somebody were to say like, oh, I studied, you know, fruit flies and when they want to take alcohol, it sounds, you know, it could sound frivolous, but it's really important for our understanding of neurology and evolution and behavior and addiction. And that obviously is important. I think there's a lot of times when people say like, why are, why is the National Science Foundation funding like the way that salmon smell their natal streams it's like well when art hassler studied that it saved the salmon industry you know just for example for sure um, (laughs) you know that salmon had to get back to their natal streams to lay eggs and they couldn't have dams that would prevent that or the whole you know just the idea that basic research has great value and the idea that there are scientists out there who are just exploring what's interesting to them just following their nose is a major reason why culture has progressed so far and why we have so many wonderful you know life-saving or life enhancing aspects to our life. And I feel like I could get down off my soapbox now, but I just think that value no. of research is can never be overstated. I think that that is so true because there's so many things I always say, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And I was just talking to a client about how through Ventura, we have a huge monarch butterfly. They migrate through my um, backyard always has tons. And sometimes I, you know, they die and I find them, but they're always in the back. It's just so fascinating to me how those things happen. And when we understand some of those things, how they migrate, it it just opens up so much more understanding of our world is way more complex and detailed, but fascinating than we think just on the surface. You know, when we just stay on the surface, it keeps us not really totally understanding our world. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I so love that you brought up the example of the monarchs. It's something that's very near and dear in my heart because my husband has a nonprofit called, not just his alone, but it's called Arizona Milkweeds for Monarchs. And he and a lot of students uh, plant milkweed gardens and sell milkweed seedlings that are ripe for the area that you're in and attract monarchs. And we were in California last year on a trip, you know, going to see some of the monarch sites. And I think that monarchs are this very sexy species and everyone's pretty excited about them and understanding their massive migration over generations. But every species should have that kind of interest in them, in my opinion. For sure, for sure. And it is. And it really, because my kids, when they were in preschool, they really studied monarchs because they come through. And I remember having to search. They had them go from the caterpillar, you know, and and turn into the butterfly and did the whole stages. And one of the things I had to do as a preschool parent, they're like, you need to find milkweed for us. So literally, we'd like, I had to hop a fence to a school once to cut 
branches off. And it was like a Facebook who has milkweed I can come cut because we do need more. It's really not as prevalent as it should be for, you know, being it. So that's a fascinating nonprofit that again, nobody would think about, but once they were gone, they were gone. And just like people are paying more attention to honeybees and, you know, save the bees. We don't realize what these little creatures do for us until they're gone. And then we suffer, you know, so it's fascinating. Yeah, definitely. And I'm so glad you brought up honeybees because and I realize I'm going back a little ways in questions. That's but okay. I have another favorite column I really want to mention because I'm so interested. My my um my you know PhD was about the defensive behavior of tropical social wasps. I'm interested in social insects and defensive behavior. And one of the columns I wrote about was how um honeybees, some some types of honeybees, um, not the ones that we have in this uh, continent, but the ones in Asia are able to defend themselves against these giant hornets. They know the ones that everyone was calling murder hornets a couple of years ago. Okay. And these hornets are like five times the size of a honeybee. And if a, a hornet comes in and finds a honeybee hive, and then she goes back and recruits all her nestmates, they'll basically tear up all the adults and eat all the young and take the honey. And there's not much that the adults can do if they really have a raid like that. But if just a single hornet comes and they can stop her before she goes back to recruit nestmates, they, they can get kind of hundreds of them can surround her in a ball and vibrate their wings and generate enough heat that they kill the hornet. And the hornets die at like about 115 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm not sure I have that number right, by the way, but around there, but the honeybees can survive up to 117 degrees. So they basically cook her to death and keep her from going back and recruiting her nestmates. And there they can survive slightly higher temperature. So it's a really interesting thing about how sure there was evolutionary pressure for them to be able to survive hotter temperatures and to come up with basically an evolutionary solution to this problem of these giant murder hornets attacking them. That is, yeah. And I think it's fascinating too, like you said, maybe the numbers aren't perfect, but that such a close temperature, but you just need to have it be able to maintain just a little hotter than your quote unquote enemy. And you can, you know, save your whole hive. You know, that is, that is, they are super, even though they like to sting me, um, I still don't, you know, want them to go away. <laughs> right. You understand their value. And I think actually, now that I'm remembering, I think they can survive up to like 120 degrees, but anyway, nobody listening to this should try to get these exact temperatures, you know, as a, <laughs> don't write I, this in I'm your scientific sure. document. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure I, I knew at one time, but you know, whatever that neuron just died, apparently that's still in that information. <laughs> I say my brain is full and that information got archived. Um, yeah. So we have to go into the attic to find it. So <laughs> I'm only going to the attic if it's important. <laughs> right, exactly. So no, that is super great. Now, writing all these articles, these articles were all written over time because they were for the newspaper. So it wasn't like you sat down with this book and did it all at once, like maybe other books. But Kaz writing this book and putting all of these books together, all these stories together in one book, have they changed you? Like, has it, been something like did you have any aha moments with that or was it just I'm so happy to have all my collection of articles that have been thrown out over the years in this newspaper in one book you know it was pretty interesting putting it all together uh, for a couple of reasons one so I put it all together and you know I have an introduction in there and you know and acknowledgments and you know the sort of random things you add of the book so it was kind of fun thinking about it retrospectively I also after each column just put a little you know a sentence or two or three about some commentary. Like I wrote one time about polar bears and sort of obsessive behavior because they often show it in zoos. And it was when we'd had several feet of snow and flag stuff and all we were doing was shoveling. And I mentioned that in the note. The other thing was that, so Eileen Anderson um, 
edited this book. She also edited my last book, Treat Everyone Like a Dog. And I love working with her. She's uh, become a friend through our working relationship, a close friend. And so she edited it, which was great. And people might know her from Eileen and Dogs. And she yes. also the book, Remember Me and um, and the new puppy socialization book. Um, yes. with Marjorie. So she's really big in the dog world. And I was grateful to get to work with her. And, and as we were going through, there were certain things that I kept saying, like, oh, I better change this. I better change that. Even though I was originally just putting the columns together. And one of the things that really, I like kind of an aha moment with putting this book together was that there are certain words that I'd use that were no longer appropriate. Like something used to be called the gypsy moth. And now I can't remember what it's called now, but that is obviously an inappropriate, you know, racial term. And then there are things like pygmy marmosets and the term pygmy, which refers to a group of people is no longer appropriate. So their, their names changing like pygmy seahorses are not called that anymore, or they're working towards changing names. And I think it's interesting to see our language changing. Mm -hmm. And, and I used to always feel very conscious of like, of, proper grammar in the in the standard sense like with he and she and now I use they as a singular quite comfortably and when I which I didn't used to do mm -hmm. um, just getting used to pronouns so I feel like it's more like for, not from an animal behavior point of view that it was so interesting to me but from a language point of view yeah like a social that. language yeah little fun fact weird fact about me is I have my minor in linguistics and um, because I oh. wanted to teach biology and do um and that's so why I got my TESOL certificate which is why we're the biology brain of me teacher came out when I read this book, but it is, I think language and linguistics is very fascinating too, but that probably the part I'm interested in is the behavior part a lot too. I really didn't have a lot of interest in teaching English as a second language, which is why I didn't go that route once I interned in it and went, I'd rather work with the behavior of animals, but, but it is, but our language is part of our behavior. You know, it is a part that evolves just like everything we learn about animals is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I share an interest in linguistics. I only took, I think I didn't take many classes in college, but I was so interested to learn about how language is not strictly cultural in the sense that the brain development and when we're receptive to language and the sort of ways that we have possibilities of language in our brain that are basically winnowed as we develop. And uh, I thought, I think it's really interesting. Like an infant would be capable of producing every phoneme, but if they don't hear it by a certain age, they can't. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. I think it's interesting how the brain development is a fundamental part of linguistics. I didn't know that. Obviously I didn't, I didn't study it like you did, but I, I do have an interest in it. And I've definitely, definitely always think of it as a part of, of animal behavior. Yes, exactly. And culturally, you know, we looked at how everybody speaks different and why and all those things, which is a way whole nother story. But when you're writing a book, you know, those things are different. And I have to say, I do enjoy the little print that you have at the end of the article about kind of an update or a, a story about it or, oh, you know, because like with, with my glowfish, because that was one of my favorites and how you're like, nope, they're still being sold and they're still popular <laughs> even 10 years later. So I um, do like your little updates too. And we've talked about so many things and I feel like I could talk about this book forever, but is there anything that you, as like a take-home story that you would want people to remember or like a, this is why you should really read this book. I mean, I know I'm kind of asking you to, you know, do a little sales pitch here, but not really, but I want you to think about like the person who might be interested in this, they're looking at it, something that a take-home story that might help them go, you know what? I am going to try reading that book. Well, wow, it's such a good question. And one I kind of wish I had a better answer for. 
I guess, I mean, I often think of this, we were talking about like you're talking about how you can read a little bit at a time, whatever. And uh, it's kind of been a bit of a little joke in my circle that it really would make the perfect bathroom reader, <laughs> just these 500 word articles. But I think in terms of like a take-home message, I, I would want to make sure that I mentioned that the title of it, Cows, Ants, Termites, and Me, is based on a story. And I, I, I chose that title because I kind of liked it and because I feel like this is such a personal book to me. And that column about cows, ants, termites, and me, it's basically about how when I was pregnant, I felt like a cow and, but termites and certain ants get even bigger. These honeypot ants blow up to be like the size of like a mini marble with, with food stores for the, for the colony. And I just feel like this book, I would hope people would be interested in it because it relates so much to humans. Like we are just another animal. And these are things that I think we'll find familiar from whether it's cats playing with their food or sort of courtship stories. So I, I think that what I would hope people that are interested in animals would find interesting about this book is partly, you know, just a relationship with our, with our own species. I don't know that I fully answered your question. No, I think that I, that's really good. It's funny because the way I keep thinking about it in my head is the chicken soup for the soul series, you know, that all those different series that they are, that's kind of how I'm like, this is kind of my own personal, you know, chicken soup, you know, and like I said, I carried it around. And if I'm like kind of in a space where I just want to read something, but that's quick, fun and of my interest being a, you know, behavior nerd and animal nerd myself, I just keep finding it so fun. And yesterday I was to reading it and I was like, okay, I really have to do some work, but can I, I'll just read one more, you know? And it felt like I got kind of addicted to it in that, in a good way. Like it was just really fun. And I took it camping with me, kind of the same thing. I just, I just enjoy reading it in bits and pieces. And I think that's, what's nice too, is, you know, sometimes life is so busy right now to commit to a book where you're like, oh, I have to read it from beginning to end. So I'm not even going to start reading it. Y'all have to do that with this. You know, like you said, they're 500 words. It's, it's a quick read, but it's a fun read. It can get you thinking about other things and how it pertains. So I think there's a lot of fun parts to it. So I hope that it, you know, really people take gravitate to it, even whether they're in our field of behavior and animals and, and they work with animals and do animal things, or if they're just somebody, because everybody who loves animals could be enjoyed. Kids like young kids could really like this. I am totally going to tell the professor at the um, college to look into this because it's right up his alley. And then, you know, he might be able to have other of his biology geeks want to do it because I'm a full-on biology geek. So I think that's why that's I like good. it so much. Well, so. I'm glad it resonated with you that way. And I love the way you think of it as like fun. And, and it, you know, I, I mean, I do a lot of reading in my field, but like mostly about dogs, but other things as well. And even though I love doing it, sometimes, honestly, it does feel like I'm kind of eating my spinach, you know, like you're yes. doing, you have to, even, even while I'm enjoying it. And I, I think of this book a little bit more as like chocolate chip cookies than spinach you know each one is its own little treat hopefully uh and so that is the that it, you know it is meant to be just an entertaining and informative column each time it appears in the paper and hopefully there will be more people like you who you know love animals and are interested in it and find this you know, entertaining and I, in a fun way, because a lot of reading that we have to do is, you know, it's, it's work, even yes. if we like studies and, and yeah, when we're reading studies yeah. or textbook type things, or, you know, really complicated man, you know, training manual or whatever. I know sometimes I go, I have so many dog training type books or behavior books. And I go, Oh, I don't really want to read that from front to back, you know, back, but this is a really fun book to read. I do think of it like the chocolate chips is a great analogy. 
I'm glad we agree. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Karen, thank you so very much for joining me again on this podcast. And now I can't wait until the dog article one comes out. I'll be chomping at the bit, watching for it when it gets published. But we will share all of this on the podcast. So anybody who's listening can check it out. I highly, highly recommend it. And Karen is always fun to talk to, but this book is really fun too. So Karen, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, thank you, Shannon. It's really a pleasure. I love talking to you and I love talking about cows, ants, termites, and me. And it's just, it's just really nice to be talking with other people who really appreciate anything about animals, like a a shared interest, even larger than just dogs. (laughs) Well, thank you guys and check it out. Give all the links will be on the messages. Well, thank you, Karen. And I hope to talk to you again soon.